0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Limi Abdelalty from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Lisa Ann Ritchie about her new book with Alexandra Kuzima Budabin. The book is titled Batman Saves the Congo How Celebrities Disrupt the Politics of Development, and it was published by University of Minnesota Press in 2021. This book focuses on Ben Affleck's activities in the Congo to make a broader argument about celebrity humanitarianism. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Um, sure. Yeah. As you mentioned, my name is Lisa Ritchie. I'm professor of globalization at the Copenhagen Business School, which is not surprisingly in Copenhagen, Denmark, um, although you might have noticed from my accent, I'm actually American. I I was born and trained in the U.S. I'm a political scientist uh, from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, But I've been working in Denmark for most of my academic career. And I've worked on the politics of aid and humanitarian helping. I'm very interested in in why it is that people think they can help and how complicated that becomes in the political realm. And I'm here also on behalf of my co-author of the book. uh, And her name is Alexandra cosima Budabin. And she's a senior researcher uh, located at the Human Rights Center at University of Dayton in the U.S., but also at um, the Free University of Bolzano in Italy, where she lives at the moment. Unfortunately, she couldn't be with us today. So I'm going to take on responsibility for talking about the book. Well, I'm glad that
0: you were able to join us, even though Alexandra was not. Um, So I wonder uh, if you could tell us how you both came to write this book, Batman Saves the Congo.
1: Um, Sure. Actually, actually... Alex's fault, and she's not here to defend herself. So I can actually tell the backstory to how we came to write this book. Uh, we had written a couple of articles, in fact, looking at Ben Affleck's work in, in the, with the Eastern Congo Initiative and, and larger works in celebrity humanitarianism and philanthropy, because we were part of a research network, uh, which was an international network on celebrity and North-South relations, where we we're trying to understand what was happening that we were seeing now with celebrities like Angelina Jolie and George Clooney Uh, Ben Affleck and and my own personal favorite, Bono, who uh, was topic of a previous book I wrote. And and Alex and I had a really fantastic debate, which led to the fact that we decided to write the book together, which is because in the beginning, um, we actually thought we might have found our, our black swan in celebrity humanitarian terms, really the outlier who was doing things fundamentally differently than a lot of the other celebrity humanitarians that we and our colleagues who worked on very many different celebrities, not just Hollywood A-listers as well, but also celebrities who were from and based in the global South. So what was really interesting was when we were looking at you know, the real differences in terms of how celebrities work in terms of global helping and humanitarianism, we thought in the beginning, well, to be more specific, Alex thought in particular, and with very compelling argumentation from her discourse analysis, that he was doing things differently. And we had, a good, we had a, a good intellectual debate because I said, oh, you know, it's sounding more and more like, you know, like what I had studied previously in terms of brand aid, where celebrities linked together with companies, basically to sell things at the end of the day, using causes as a way of getting consumers involved in, in global helping. And she was pointing out, which you also read about in the book, that actually initially the Eastern Congo Initiative wasn't selling anybody anything. And this was quite unusual. And so we were very interested in why they were working on topics, for example, that really weren't part of the mainstream and how everybody else was helping in Congo. Um, in the beginning, they were working on things like security sector reform, which was not very sexy, frankly, um, when everybody else was interested in Coltan and everybody else was interested in, in gender-based violence. And so Alex said, you know, we really should look more into this because this really might be what we can, what we can actually use to, uh, to explain the phenomenon much more clearly. And so that got us interested in writing the book. Um, At the end, I'd like to say that, of course, as we started, you know, continued studying over time, then Ben Affleck and his ECI organization did get more interested in partnering with business, which, of course, is, you know, takes up a lot of the book and selling lots of different kinds of products. And so at the end of the day, it turned out not to be our black swan example, but to be a really excellent illustration about how the power of celebrity actually can work in terms of, Really trying, you know, trying to convene different kinds of interests and power, both financial interests, uh, but also representational interest, and you know what what we're getting in terms of the image economy. So that's what we did. That, that's why we decided to do it as a book at the end. And the result is really a fascinating
0: book. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking more about, uh, you know, your argument of how does the Ben Affleck claims to disrupt uh, development, but may not necessarily do so uh, when we take a closer look at the sorts of activities that his initiative is actually involved in. Um, But let's kind of take a step back. Um, The book seems to revolve around a central concept, what you call celebrity strategic partnerships. Now, before we get into the specifics of Batman and the Congo, um, what do you mean by this phrase, celebrity strategic partnerships?
1: Yeah, well... Celebrity strategic partnerships is really the term which we've used to identify these series of relationships that we have, we have identified as the empirical example from the book, which is the elite networks that work across the political, financial, and philanthropic sectors, which overlap and reinforce each other. So these partnerships are actually the ways in which, um, for example, um, the project Kahawa Bora, which was about better coffee, brought together to revitalize the Congolese coffee sector and support coffee farmers. And this brought together traditional uh, aid partnerships, I'm sorry, aid donors like USAID, you know, the, the U.S. Development Agency, Howard Buffett, the philanthropist, um, also traditional aid partners like Catholic Relief Services and World Coffee Research. And then finally, of course, the, 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 the primary uh, partner in this collaboration was Starbucks. And so it isn't just the celebrity and the celebrity organization, which was something which was interesting to us, but it was the way in which they were able to form strategic partnerships, which were able to convene both elite resources, again, in terms of financing, but also in terms of elite networks. That's very helpful.
0: Uh, So your core argument in the book is that there is a relationship that you've kind of already alluded to. There's a relationship between celebrity disruption and neoliberal development. Can you clarify these links for us in general terms?
1: Sure, sure. And I I hope to be able to do this, you know, the the spoiler part of the book argument. I'll I'll say this in the beginning, just in case somebody doesn't actually get to the end of the podcast. Um, The the, the spoiler is basically that these kinds of partnerships, which are anchored by celebrity led organizations, linking, as I mentioned before, these traditional actors like the donor agencies with non-traditional actors like uh, philanthropists and, you know, um, also, you know, also other elite actors basically rely on the same kinds of infrastructure as old school development and humanitarian organizations and infrastructures. And that at the end of the day, they disrupt very little. And they actually help the helpers more than they help the helped. And that's really the unfortunate thing about what happens with celebrity strategic partnerships. So the links in specific in our book, and the arguments, are, are basically summarized by these that while celebrities claim that they're disrupting the usual politics of humanitarianism and development, they actually lay bare the practices of elite networking, visibility, and profitable helping. It's one of the big misnomers about celebrity politics that somehow it's more popular and appeals more to the people or the masses. Actually, it's one of the most elitist forms of politics. Also, despite the claims to being innovative and disruptive, um, celebrities actually operate as these elite players in the same kinds of North-South relations with access to political and financial capital. And so therefore, they disrupt very little. And despite the possibility that they could have a long-term commitment and performances of the authenticity by celebrities, they actually don't increase any accountability for any constituency, whether those in the North, like the people who actually buy the products and want to support the organizations, or those in the Global South, like the Congolese farmers that they're meant to benefit. So then despite bringing together the traditional and non-traditional actors of humanitarianism through their convening power, the celebrities don't really enable any better representation of beneficiary voices. And so once again, we actually see the same kinds of power being made basically in terms of, of white saviorism by elite old white men uh, who are primarily based in the North and making alliances with businesses under on the, on, on the idea that they're supposed to be helping people in the South.
0: Now, we're going to get into how it is that this argument plays out uh, in the Congo specifically. Um, But first, the methodology and the data collection in the book is really very wide ranging. Um, Can you you tell us a little bit
1: about the various methods you use? Sure. And thanks for asking. That is actually one of the absolute joys about talking on a political science podcast, Um, because I often talk to people about the fact that I am a political scientist. And they say, you know, well, wow, what you do seems so interdisciplinary. And I say, yes, but actually what I get from political science is an attention to the methodology and the rigor. Because these are the kinds of things that people are, are much more interested in and say, oh, well, that's just something you can study by, you know, surfing around the internet. And, and one thing that we actually try to do is to take these relationships as elite politics quite seriously. And like other scholars of politics, um, we, we engage in, in a combined kind of a methodology which we actually call it, we draw from other scholars, calling it a bricolage approach, but where we actually link together ethnography. Um, And this is because we think it's extremely important to actually include actual relationships with people who are Congolese, who are working on Congolese politics based in the U.S., Congolese people who are working in the Democratic Republic of Congo, North Americans working on both sides, and also other internationals. And so we also include fieldwork. I myself actually went down and did fieldwork in the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo and did a, a field site in Kinshasa, which I'll talk to you a little bit more about. But we also engaged other researchers who did some field work for us with farmers and cooperatives in the Eastern Congo and did interviews and focus groups with, with beneficiaries of these projects so that we could also get a better understanding of the recipient side. And that's where the ethnography comes in. And, and that also includes 38 interviews that we did both in person and and on, on, on Skype and, and Zoom across the world. Then we link that with a political economy analysis where we actually need to follow follow the money. And this is where we're actually charting the partnerships and the relationships of power that exist between these various collaborators, but also the financial flows. And this has been something which is quite interesting, it was quite hard to do, frankly. One of the things that that everyone's quite secretive about, of course, is, is you know, sex and money. And um, we were trying to figure out where, where it is that all the big money from people like the Buffets or the Clintons actually go in Congo. And one way we did that was looking through IRS forms. Uh, 990s, you know, any nonprofit has to actually report. And so this was one way for us to find out a lot more about where money went. It was also interesting to compare that with annual reports from organizations, uh, with media reports. Of course, there was a lot of media around all these initiatives, which is one thing that Celebrity brings in. Um, and Charity Navigator, there were other places where you could get data for doing the political economy analysis. And then finally, as I mentioned before, uh, we conducted a narrative analysis where we actually did a, an analysis of the text and the visuals that were presented around all of these initiatives from Ben Affleck's organization, from organizations that collaborated with it so that we could understand more about how the representations of these power relationships were being presented both to sell products, but also to sell ideas of development.
0: So very, uh, you know, impressive range uh, of data that's brought to bear here. Um, now, of getting to the Congo, which is your main focus uh, in the book, can you set the stage for us? Uh, Tell us what humanitarianism related to the Congo looked like before Ben Affleck got
1: involved. Oh, wow. Yeah, thank you for asking about that. Because, I mean, one of the things I think I'd like to do, if it's okay, is I'd like to just read you a very short vignette of one of the more historical precedents for the celebrity strategic partnership. Because one of the things that's, that's very interesting to us is that when we started to talk about these partnerships and we show the ways in which they interact, it seems like something which is very contemporary, very Hollywood, very linked up to Silicon Valley meets Hollywood do-gooding. But actually some of the, the earliest versions of commodity activism um, and awareness raising were things that we can actually trace back to, uh, to, to Victorian England and to these anti-colonial, anti-imperial struggles. So one of of the things that we introduced very early on in the introduction, so that people understand that these celebrity problems that we identify have a very long and very deep colonial and imperial history. And and this is where we look at the example of the Englishman E.D. Morell. And and Morell was a fascinating character, and I I can't tell too much about him, of course, but I hope people will be interested in reading about this in the book. but one of the things that, that he did was to write a book called Red Rubber, and this was published in 1906. So when you think that we're all political scientists on only contemporary phenomena, you have to think about how this is a real precursor, because Red Rubber was, was connecting the blood, right, or the conflict diamonds to, you know, what we see in the 1990s advocacy campaigns. And so in the review of this book, the Daily Chronicle from the UK extended the mantle of complicity and said, Rubber, black with promises, broken before the powers of Europe and the United States. Rubber, red with blood. Rubber, which should stink in the nostrils of the Englishmen, who, to their shame, grow fat on the profits of shipping at home. What's really interesting is that his campaign, which was very successful, never resulted in actually boycotting Rubber, as many of the other boycotts against sugar, for example, anti-slavery and anti-colonial protests did, It's because rubber was too strategic. And so it's quite interesting that we see this Victorian era campaign, which was also linked to the first non-governmental humanitarian campaign to use atrocity photographs. So showing these very devastating photographs of Congolese children with severed hands and bringing those to the European and North American audience in the early 1900s was a way of of both connecting people to the Congo, but also of constructing the Congo as the kind of place where we should have this emotional response and that people should be moved to action through consumption. And we see these things coming up again in, in, in celebrity humanitarianism, particularly in the case of Ben Affleck's work in Eastern Congo. One of the things you chart um,
0: in, discuss- in discussing sort of this, this background of humanitarian work in the Congo is you discuss how it is that over time a um, sort of dominant narrative emerges Uh, about the uh, roots of the conflict in the Congo and what the solution ought to be. Um, What what is this dominant narrative?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, There have been lots of interesting scholars that have worked on narratives around Congo. Uh, And I'll call out some of my colleagues, like the the work of Severin Altasair, which is very well known for her narratives on Congo, Um, but also Claude Kabimba, who's who's really talking about Congo as being constructed the, the land of humanitarian interventions. It is really quintessentially the place where people come to exercise their humanitarian desires um, as a site in need of humanitarian interventions and particularly from foreign entities. So a lot of these kinds of tropes about the Congo as, as a place where people need to be saved then turns into the Congo as a place where problems need to be solved. And so we move from saving the Congo to solving the Congo and the, the narratives that we, you know, that we see are things which are, quite common in terms of how Africa gets represented. It's quite, you know, quite unfortunate that we see the narratives about sexual violence, um, narratives about Africans in need of white saviorism lead to very specific kinds of financial flows. And this is something that we we actually identify in the book. And I don't know if I'm jumping ahead too much to talk a little bit more about how it is celebrity-based organizations get their money. But that is one of the things that we were able to find out and actually document in the work that we did in terms of tracing the money, was if you actually look at organizations that work on Congo, because there are lots of organizations that actually work on behalf of Congo, even those who work um, in terms of of trying to raise awareness and funding from Americans and and other uh, European and North American sources. But the ones that actually get money are the ones who are actually working with guerrillas working with sexual violence, or working with Ben Affleck. And so we have plenty of other Congolese-led organizations that have been neglected in terms of their attention and fundraising because they're not following the dominant narratives because they consider Congolese actors to be agents who are actually enacting political will and political power. And so we see very different things happening. Money doesn't really follow those those kinds of narratives. Money follows the narratives of the needy Congolese people and the white saviors who can help them. One of the fascinating things uh,
0: that you do in the book is sort of document um, the various ways that Ben Affleck and his organization disrupt and also amplify uh, these dominant narratives. Um, but let me take a step back and ask you, so Ben Affleck gets involved in the Congo. How is it that he chooses, you know, uh, this issue and how does he set up this Eastern Congo
1: initiative? Yeah. So thanks. So This is actually something which which has been um, an interesting story to us about how he actually came to choose the Congo. Of course, we were grounding ourselves a lot in in issue selection literature, which, um, which was something which informed a lot of how we would think about how he would come to choose the Congo. And one of the things that this literature really didn't suggest to us, which we found out from interviews in the field, was that while Affleck was doing a lot of work on the ground, he was actually doing a lot of venue shopping, trying to figure out where it is that he should have an impact. And we have some interviews with informants that that he actually contacted at that point. um, When he was shopping around, and of course didn't want to step on the toes of other celebrity humanitarians like George Clooney, right, who had already taken Sudan, for example. Um, But the the really short answer about why and, and how it is he came to choose the Congo has to do with his hiring of a private consulting firm uh, called Williams Works. And I can talk a little bit more about that uh, later if you're interested. But what's very interesting is that this is never part of the story that actually gets told about the history of of ECI, the Eastern Congo Initiative, even to people who work inside the organization. In fact, one of the interesting uh, quotes that we got from one of our interviewees, who, of course, will remain anonymous, was that... After she had read our book manuscript, which we asked for comments on to make sure we were representing everyone properly and that we were assuring their anonymity, that one of the most disillusioning parts of the story for her was actually this part—the part about how it is he chose the Congo, because he chose it as a strategic choice on the advice of of, of Williams' works and Whitney Williams' uh, strategic work in terms of where it is that the political aspirations, um, you know, could could most can be most effective, because he hired this firm to help him to create this organization and to gain some experience with politics. Because at this point, there was a question about whether Ben Affleck himself might be going into American politics. But Whitney Williams, who comes from a political family, was already very much on that path. And so it's a politically connected Washington, D.C. firm, uh, which is very much uh, dealing with political insiders in D.C. And so she helped Affleck to collect could connect very quickly to philanthropists for funding and to high-profile elites to give him credibility. So after touring around in Africa and you know selecting a suitable conflict afflicted country, uh, they then gathered expertise to give him a crash course on the Congo. And so the Eastern Congo initiative was launched in 2010 after this sort of venue shopping where ECI was able to set itself apart from other development organizations by doing both grant making but also advocacy. And so that was related to their connection to other community-based organizations. And this was on the basis of doing, again, a lot of good strategic consulting work and figuring out where he was likely to have the biggest impact.
0: So early on, you described how, um, at least your co-author, Ben Affleck and his organization seemed to be a a black swan, right, Um, in the field of celebrity humanitarianism. Can you just clarify a little bit, what is it that seemed to set this organization and Ben Affleck apart? I think in
1: the beginning, what really set Affleck's organization apart was the fact that they were not following so much the dominant narrative. And this is about narrating the Congo, which is what we identify actually in in Chapter uh, 2, which which we subtitled Dangerous Single Stories and the Organizations that Need Them. And the reason that it seemed different is because there were lots of organizations already working in the Congo. And the organizations which were working... um, were were organizations which uh, which uh, were identified by one of our experts in an interview, where she started to give us a summary. She was talking about there was so much going on, and, and this is what we actually start the chapter with, where she says, "You know, Eve Ensler did the vagina mo- monologues in Bukavu. Many pansy survivors were pressured to tell their stories publicly. These are victims of gender based violence." And she said there was yoga for the Congo. There were clowns without borders, and then she stopped and left. She said, "You know." When the clowns showed up, we knew it was a circus, and that really summarizes what was going on. There were so many different organizations coming and going, um, and the, Ben Affleck's work and the Eastern Congo Initiative seemed to be much more serious. They were given a lot of credibility. I mean, as you might know, Ben Affleck was given an honorary doctorate at Brown University. It's been interesting to hear my colleagues talk about being there for that and about how it was that you know this was something which was taken extremely seriously in contrast to the clowns, and so. This is one of the reasons why we thought, well, this really might be a very exceptional organization. And in many ways, it has been exceptional. It was exceptional in terms of attempting to work with local organizations. Uh, It was exceptional in terms of actually trying to, in the beginning, not go along with conflict minerals and sexual and gender-based violence, which were the two things which every single other organization was involved in trying to help with. And in terms of trying to deal with something much more difficult, like security sector reform. uh, which doesn't have the usual photogenic recipients of the worthy women and children that everybody likes to try to help, right? When you're talking about men who hold guns, you make things much more politically complicated and for humanitarian helping. I mean, that's something that's not used very often. Uh, Slightly unfortunately, in some ways, in terms of our narrative, that did shift over time uh, when the security sector reform proved to be not terribly surprising to anyone who knows anything about Eastern Congo, about Congo in general, or about the politics of Central Africa, something in which a rather novice organization that didn't have history with the political situation in Congo or in other African countries and didn't understand the very complicated politics involved didn't really have much of an impact in. And so they quickly shifted away from that and moved into what seemed to have been what they considered an easier and less risky area, which is economic development.
0: Perfect segue to my next question, which is, um, you, you know, you, you do in the book sort of very carefully document this shift from um, by Ben Affleck's organization from a focus on security sector reform towards development. Um, so tell us about how he came to partner with Theo Chocolate and with Tom's.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, Theo Chocolate was actually the first, it was the first time where I, where I said to Alex, no, you see, I told you he was going to tell us something, he was going to sell us something. Um, as as the author of previous work on brand aid, I was just waiting for the product placement to come in. And and when it it did, it really reoriented the kind of research we needed to do, frankly, because instead of identifying and chasing what was happening with an alternative approach to celebrity humanitarianism, we then were looking at what we saw, which was a deeply reinforcing politics of neoliberal humanitarianism and brand aid, which is something um, fortunately we knew something about, but it it was where the, 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 Partnerships with Theo Chocolate was was fascinating because not just because they were partnering with a chocolate producer and producing chocolate bars for sale, uh, which which were two you know two kinds of chocolate bars which were meant to heal Eastern Congo, um, but it was the idea of marketing this caring and marketing it through everything from the logos on the chocolate bars to Ben Affleck's uh, promotions which he linked together with his own promotions. Um, at this time, this was a, a bit in the past, he was doing the film Argo. Remember Argo, where Ben Affleck sort of had, you know, kind of long hair, 1970s look? And it was interesting because all the media time that he used when he was promoting Argo was also used for product placement for Theo. And not coincidentally, this was also a way of, of putting up the Eastern Congo in the minds of Americans who were meant to buy these, these chocolate bars to support Eastern Congo. And this was actually one of the things that I started doing research really much more seriously about to understand, well, what were the representations that he was selling of humanitarian helping, of local development, as he sold these chocolate bars? And um, can I can I give you a quote? I wish we could just, just actually splice in the ABC News clip from Ben Affleck, because the interesting thing is he says so much by saying so little. Uh, could I read you the text from the clip? Yes, please. So... But the interesting thing now, and I'm going to read you this text, which is from, you imagine Ben Affleck sitting with the ABC News reporter, okay? And so they show the two chocolate bars, and Ben Affleck says, I started this organization called the Eastern Congo Initiative. We fund grassroots organizations in the Eastern Congo, which is, as you know, a terribly, and then the host interjects, ah, oh, so much violence. War-torn place. And we work with these folks at Greenhouse to bring their, choco, uh, their cocoa up to the level of international standards. And we hook them up with Theo's chocolate. And we have a Congo chocolate bar that's going on sale. You can get it on the Internet. It'll be at Whole Foods. And uh, you can have a beautiful chocolate meal and also help make the world a better place. And then the host says, oh, fantastic. And he shifts the conversation to Ben Affleck's then wife and their desire for a fourth child. And the reason that I reproduce this dialogue is that's absolutely all that's said. That's all that's said about Congo. That's all that's said about the global value chains of cocoa and chocolate production. It's all that's said about what they claim to be militia-proof chocolate, which is creating this imaginary world in which, you know, there's helpers who are the people who buy chocolate bars and Ben Affleck and chocolate farmer and cocoa farmers who actually receive this help. And there are no politics and there's no trade barrier and there's no difficulty in terms of of, of value chain monitoring. None of these complicated politics actually come up. It's much more an idea about the stereotypical Africa that gets represented over and over again. And that's what people want to buy when they want to feel good about buying chocolate.
0: Um, and there's, so in the book, you know, there's there's also a, a similar examination of how it is that the Eastern Congo Initiative partners up with Tom's su- uh, Shoes as well. Um, and in the book, you, you discuss how it is that these partnerships set the stage for an even more ambitious project with Starbucks. Um, so can you tell us about Kahawabora,
1: which you mentioned earlier on as well? Yeah, Sure. I'll I'll skip a little bit over Tom's shoes and encourage people if they're interested to read about that. Tom's has been studied quite a lot and it is because of its buy one, give one uh, sort of modality has been quite interesting. I will, however, update you and say that they don't do that anymore at Tom's. I I follow quite closely to industry conferences because this is fascinating to me about how companies are becoming involved in terms of people wanting to put their money where their politics are. And suddenly this idea of donating shoes wasn't good politics anymore. So- what is, however, still extremely successful politics is drinking good, sustainable coffee. And um, you've probably noticed it's afternoon here for me, and I'm drinking sustainable coffee as we as we have this podcast. And 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 one thing that that was no surprise is that Eastern Congo Initiative very quickly recognized that sustainable coffee was a really good investment for them too. And. So we, we actually did quite a lot of research on the Bora project. And Bora is, uh, is actually Kiswahili, which is a language that I speak, um, which, which is, is nice because I do other work also in Tanzania. And so I, I work in Kiswahili. But Bora literally means better coffee. And so the question is whether it's better coffee or better access and marketing and better partnerships. Because the, the Kahawabora uh, partnership was actually the biggest one that Ben Affleck has and, and ECI has been involved in thus far. Who knows what will come in the future. And it started in 2014. And as I mentioned to you together, it was actually able to bring together big funders from the philanthropic and corporate worlds, um, including the Howard Buffett Foundation. You probably know Howard Buffett, the brother of Warren Buffett. Um, and also to draw popular attention and public scrutiny to what's happening with development in Eastern Congo. So The interesting thing about this partnership is really the scale. It became something which was too big to fail. And we chart in our book, also in some other articles, on how it actually is that this partnership really was was, was, was advertising itself and branding itself as transforming lives in Congo. Yet it was in a situation where there were already other partnerships with exactly the same kind of goals run from old-fashioned development actors in the same areas, in fact, working with the same coffee cooperatives. And so we went to study those and to do a bit of a comparison because one thing that's very difficult with these very celebritized, very mediatized and hype partnerships is to understand what kind of actual impact they have on the ground. And for us, that is the most important thing. Um, If you're talking about humanitarianism and development, they do lots of things about what consumers think about Africa, but the reality is that, you know, the important part is what, what kind of impact they actually have for humanitarianism on the ground and also for recipients who are supposed to be benefiting from this influx of funding and, and other kinds of resources, also access to markets. So how actually was what, what became the flagship for Ben Affleck's announcement uh, to the U.S. Senate on uh, Foreign Relations when he was, he was saying you know, this isn't charity in the traditional sense. Or aid, it's good business. And the whole idea, of course, is that Kahawabora was one of the biggest partnerships to actually bring business in to development in Eastern Congo. And what we found both you know, in our work looking at ECI and the relationships in Kahawabora, but also looking at how Starbucks works, is that it was extremely important in terms of being too big to fail, because it brought in such big partnerships, okay? And that there were a lot of conflicts which we identify and i won't go into too much of that um, in the project when it had started for a lot of reasons including the fact that they had very inexperienced people working on it so then they brought in a lot of expertise to try to save congolese coffee but it's also something where they actually got so much media coverage that it became too big to fail just some examples um, in the new york times Ben Affleck actually was asked to write an op-ed, which was quite surprising. And in this, he said, the Congolese need our attention and support. In the private sector, Congolese coffee and cocoa farmers need greater access to financial assistance and help with organizing and advocacy adverts. And so from the New York Times, there there were articles in U.S. News and World Report, in People, in in Glamour magazine. Um, One of ECI's uh, founders gave a TED Talk, which was entitled, Can Aid Work Itself Out of Business? And the whole idea was that through bringing in businesses like Starbucks, they were going to allow aid to work itself out of business through business. So there is the irony here in my voice, but the real irony is that they were working with traditional organizations, which were the only ones that could make anything happen on the ground. But because it was too big to fail, USAID basically couldn't close it down while they did have difficulty getting them to meet their usual accountability standards. And this was also where we bring up a lot of the problems that we see with celebrity strategic partnerships, which is that they're really having difficulty being held to accountability standards because there are potential voters in the United States who are reading Glamour magazine and concerned with whether or not we're actually helping Congolese farmers enough by buying the right coffee.
0: I appreciate sort of the passion that's coming across in, uh, in, your, in your voice right now. Uh, now, as, as you describe in the book, you know, Affleck's humanitarianism winds up getting a lot of visibility and attention, right? He's lauded as being someone who's done a really good job educating himself about the situation. Um, he winds up testifying in front of Congress, as you've mentioned. Um, how were his activities perceived on the ground
1: in the Congo? Yeah, that's a, that's a such a good question, and that's one of the things that I will say I'm most proud of. You know, in in the book is how we're able to combine both how you know how these things get represented and talked about in popular media, but also how people who are non-celebrity humanitarians actually perceive of these celebrity humanitarian interventions. And so it was a really interesting thing for me when I was in Kinshasa doing. Uh, ethnographic fieldwork, which was both participant observation. I was actually attending a lot of meetings and going informally to talk to a lot of humanitarians, but I was also conducting formal interviews. And it was very interesting that when I mentioned that I was working on a project on celebrity humanitarianism, one of my respondents said to me, literally, development aid is not what it used to be with agencies like ours uh, doing most of the work. It's actually now all about collaborations between the private sector, businesses and philanthropists. And I just laughed. I just laughed. And I said, you should be writing my book. <laughs> and and then this, this this humanitarian said, well, but these collaborations are good. And so I said, but, but, you know, tell me more. Right. Why? Why are they good? Immediately into interviewer mode. And then and the respondent said, well, because they can do things that regular agencies cannot And so this was one of the perceptions which was positive, which was that because they're not bound by the same kinds of transparency, of accountability, of regulation that government agencies are bound by, that sometimes that could be a good thing as perceived by some of the celebrity, of the non-celebrity humanitarians. there were also others who were extremely critical. I had one, one respondent who couldn't meet me in person in Kinshasa and literally insisted to phone interview into me to tell me about how horrible the relationships had been with celebrity humanitarians. And talking about this is someone who had decades of experience. I should also say at a very high level, um, who was talking about the fact that you know no one finds it helpful if a celebrity comes in in the middle of a crisis. Now, if a celebrity comes into an emergency situation, absolutely no one's going to find that useful. But perhaps if they are visiting once or twice a year, this respondent said, or a dedicated ambassador, maybe then there's a return on the investment. But still, there were fundamental accountability problems. And these were things that were emphasized um, by, by many informants saying things like, well, they're good for attention, they're good for fundraising, they're good for advocacy, but people don't see the backstage about what kind of pressure they put on organizations, how organizations sometimes can't refuse these visits because they do come with this potential uh, perception of accountability for American voters who, of course, are important for American funding, uh, congressional funding, which goes through humanitarian and, or, and, and for development uh, organizations. And, and also the idea that some of them aren't serious uh, one one respondent talks about how they're just nightclubbers looking for adventures. And I laughed. I thought, Hmm, they're probably looking in the wrong place if they're coming to Kinshasa and Goma. Um, but they're also described as being arrogant and people who don't listen to that people with experience and the experts in the field. And so of course, some of the things that we see is a question about competition for expertise space. And we definitely see that while Ben Affleck was actually taken very seriously. And I, I always point that out. He was not, uh, one of the people who was talked about as being a clubber, right? He was someone who came, who knew his talking points and who stayed on task and on cue. Angelina Jolie was quite similar and uh, this is a bit of an aside. I continue to ask people about Ben Affleck and, and people love to talk to me about Angelina Jolie, particularly humanitarian workers who tended to be men of a certain age who, you know, who were very interested in Angelina and the fact that she could absolutely turn on the performance of caring anytime anyone asked her and then turn it off because she is a phenomenal actress.
0: Um, Now, obviously, you know, in this interview and also in the book, there's a healthy healthy dose of skepticism about celebrity humanitarianism and about neoliberal development. Um, Do you think that there are better ways for Ben Affleck and others to use their, quote unquote, celebrity currency?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, And and I think that Ben Affleck thinks so, too. And this is actually something that, that respondents have told me. Um, so it's not just us who think that they could do better. I think Ben Affleck also understands. But the problem isn't a question about individuals choosing to act or not act in a certain way. And this is where we get to the more systemic problems of neoliberal development and the ways in which any elite political actors actually perpetuate the kind of biases that we see, which are about being in favor of big business, big interest and financial capital, and really not taking into consideration the beneficiaries, or so-called beneficiaries of development, um, and this is what we talk about about the business of development. That's one reason why I'm actually a professor at a business school, which is a sort of surprising place. Sometimes people say, "You're so critical. How do you sit at a business school?" Well, it's because there is a business that goes around development and humanitarianism, and these are, you know, these are certainly perfectly reasonable people who care, and there's compassion. That's what we all see. But you also have to understand that's profitable. Okay. So caring has become a very profitable commodity and celebrity humanitarians like Ben Affleck have become very successful in terms of profiting from that caring, from the desire for people who want to be able to help to buy the right chocolate, to donate a pair of shoes, or to otherwise partner in doing good in the world without spending too much time or money or actually questioning any of the structural inequalities of racialized inequalities and capitalism which actually are putting these people at a disadvantage. So I do think that there's a big need for disruption in terms of the usual politics of humanitarianism and development. Celebrities themselves are not the problem. Uh, The problem is very much this dangerous trajectory, which we, it's a single story that we tell ourselves. And I I talk a good bit about this in the conclusion. I think you can see that I'm an old development studies professor in the end, which is that, you know, we, we really have this long story about development. And I think that It's more of an aspirational brand, okay? There is no such thing as developed and underdeveloped parts of the world, right? There is really this idea that we kind of make up this story where we want to be our best selves, and we want to be saviors of something, and that then becomes something that celebrities and other interests and businesses are able to profit from, so I... I took up an imaginary conversation with Ben Affleck in my head. And part of that had to do with me doing interviews with a lot of people who weren't very close to him. And I will say that I haven't yet been able to speak with uh, Affleck about the book, but I'd really like to. And and I would really be very interested in hearing, in hearing his ideas because I'd like to know whether or not there's anything he can do to shake the system from inside. Um, I would like to remain hopeful, uh, but not particularly optimistic and, and it is because that there is so much about the system of development and humanitarianism that needs to be shaped up. So if I might read to you just briefly from the conclusion, it's where I talk about the, the character of Batman. And there's a reason why we talk about Batman and we don't talk about Ben Affleck, because this is a persona. This is a character. It's a superhero that gets constructed. And it's really, it's really representing the kind of superhero that we all try to be when we try to help in this transnational, detached way, um, and, and asking, you know, what, this superhero is depicted as, you know, somebody who sometimes gets his, you know, individualism takes the best of him. And so I ask myself and readers and Ben Affleck to ponder a bit about why it is that Batman is in Congo coming to save development, modernity, humanitarianism, capitalism, and white saviorism. I mean, these don't really need support from more wealthy philanthropists or superheroes. So if we can agree with Ben Affleck, who's been quoted in his own assertion quote, that in the modern age, there is a currency to celebrity and you can spend it in a lot of ways or you can squander it, then why not invest it in democratic politics or social protection into global justice movements and work on local material alliances? Ben, why not use your wealth and charisma to convene visionary voices and then quietly hold the audience in the room while they speak? not as product spokespeople, but for their own agendas, not for yours? Why not celebrate paying your taxes, working for labor unions, and voting on issues that matter most to you? Why not use public attention to rally calls for greater accountability by governments and responsible business practices by corporations? And Ben, why not remind Americans that Africa is not our battleground, it's not our classroom, and it's not our stage? and instead turn our own political conflicts and our moral lessons and our need for creative performances into better reflections and actions and agency at home. So that's what I'd like for Ben Affleck to do for us. That's very, very powerful. Um, So uh,
0: moving on, there is a really interesting epilogue in the book that discusses how the COVID-19 pandemic breathed new life into the Eastern Congo Initiative after it had seemed to wane along with uh, Ben Affleck's fortunes. Um, So what has Affleck and his
1: organization been up to during the pandemic? Wow, this was absolutely interesting for us because we thought the organization potentially was in the process of folding as we were finishing the book. And as all of us know, you know, the most terrifying thing when you're finishing a book is something new is going to happen in terms of the empirical world that you study. And we always say we won't continue looking at it, but we always do anyway, of course, because that's how we are as intellectuals. We really want to know what's happening in the world. And when COVID-19 hit in Congo, um, for the first time, actually, ECI became enli- alive again. And so we, we, we had some interviews where a respondent was saying how they were going to have a big merger. But then 2020, actually, COVID interrupted uh, a big plan where Biden was, quote, going to do a big thing, all big and splashy. And so they started looking around for possibilities to remain useful in Eastern Congo, and they stumbled upon two. First, they actually discovered, they said that their friends in the USAID office in Kinshasa didn't have anyone on the ground in Eastern Congo, and they had a medical director in Bukavu, a CFO in Kigali, and a general manager in Kagoma. So they began writing this series of weekly briefs on the situation of COVID on Eastern Congo. Now, what's interesting is that most of these briefs I found were actually written from people who were, of course, based in these other places in Eastern Congo, but located in the United States. So there is this notion about, you know, who who has the authority to actually tell what's happening in Eastern Congo and where they actually need to be to do that. So they were interpreting the situation on the ground for development actors. It wasn't clear whether the development actors themselves, USAID, were particularly interested in in these briefings but they were available and were very much uh, applauded and promoted as part of the Eastern Kano Initiative's website and social media uh, interface. Then the second thing they did um, which was actually as part of their work on social enterprise and this is this is work for another day and another book perhaps which is where they actually produced educational materials in English, Kiswahili and French and these were materials which were actually put out to try to inform people of course about Uh, you know, how to protect themselves from COVID, but they were also marketing materials for a for-profit organization called Asili that ECI had just merged with. And so the idea is that, you know, of six points, one of them is marketing, pure on marketing, where they say Asili protects your health and your health protects Asili without necessarily making clear that this was a private for-profit health organization uh, this is also happening in Eastern Congo at the time when the, when the government was engaged. They were very early on, unlike other African countries like Tanzania, where I work, uh, which was not very early on involved in the fight against COVID. DRC was extremely uh, active. They were active in the Eastern Congo. They also had a lot of international interests. And so it wasn't that there was a lack of government or international donor attention, which a small organization needed to fill. It was that there was an opportunity to service consumers while selling the idea that they were the ones who were going to provide health care for a cost for people who were dealing with COVID. It's so fascinating. Now, obviously, we've only
0: skimmed the surface of uh, the rich content that's in the book. Um, And Lisa, I know we've taken up a lot of your time. So just one final question. Now that this book is done, what are you working on now?
1: Wow, thanks. (laughs) Right now, actually, we're we're working on a number of things. One thing we're doing is we're gonna we're working on a forum piece because we've had the 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 great uh, opportunity of having other scholars discuss the book with us, which has been something for which we're extremely grateful. And we recently had a, a conference panel uh, both at the African Studies Association meeting and at the International Humanitarian Studies Association. And so we're working on a forum piece for the Journal of Humanitarian Affairs. And I want to plug the journal; it's a new journal, which is actually. Quite interesting and aspiring to meet the needs of both scholars and practitioners in humanitarianism and international relations, and so it's a, it's a journal worth your while. It's also open access, which is something I very much support. So for this piece, we're going to prioritize giving voice to other scholars and how these kinds of relationships of power that we've identified. In our discussion of strategic partnerships, we're actually impacting the world, both of humanitarianism elsewhere and the practices of actual humanitarians, but also other scholars and how they think about these uh, resonances between their scholarship and humanitarian uh, understandings. And so that's part of what we're going to do. I'm also doing some other work on commodifying compassion, implication of turning people and causes into marketable things. And that's the large research project that I'm currently running in three countries. So I hope to have a new book that will come out of that once we get all the data in from Italy and Denmark and the U.S.
0: Those sound like great projects. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation, Lisa. Thank you for being on the show today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm sorry that Alex couldn't be with us. I'm delighted that we got to talk about the book. And thank you so much for reading it. It's fantastic that you did that and you invited us.
0: You're very welcome. The book is Alexandra Cosima-Budabin and Lisa Ann Ritchie's Batman Saves the Congo, How Celebrities Disrupt the Politics of Development, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2021. Thank you for listening.